0: Welcome and happy holidays. Uh, welcome to another episode of the School of Science Radio. Uh, as our regular listeners will have noticed, I am not Gino Ganello. Gino could not be with us this evening, but we do have myself, Adam Braun, and as always, Chris alongside as well. How are you doing tonight, Chris?
1: I, I'm not too bad. I've got Everton one today. I've got a cold beer by my side. Let's, uh, let's get rolling.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I think – that's pretty much all man can ask for, right? Yeah, Oregon pretty good. Yeah. yeah, just as basic as it gets. Uh, so obviously, as Chris alluded to, uh, we're recording today on, on Boxing Day on December 26th, coming off the high of uh, an Everton victory over Burnley. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that match in a little bit, but there has been obviously some other ongoings in the world of Everton since last we uh, we spoke. Uh, the, the first thing was, uh, unfortunately, Everton did play a match this weekend, uh, against Arsenal. Uh, it ended in a nil-nil draw. It was the last match of the Duncan Ferguson tenure and it, it has potentially rightly been described as, as the worst game of the Premier League season so far. Uh, it was it was
1: certainly the worst one that i saw
0: i haven't watched them all but yeah i mean surely uh, watford or southampton or someone has has played a worse game surely but uh, it it was it was pretty horrific um we have decided as a group that we don't want to talk about that match because it was awful and there wasn't really a whole lot to take away from it except for you know a point which isn't nothing uh anything that that you wanted to to add on that that arsenal match, Chris before we move on to some of the happenings of later than the week Just
1: two very quick things and okay number number one that you could kind of tell that the players on both sides really it was kind of the exact same situation for both clubs knew that their new manager was in the stands and they were not going to have to listen to this interim guy's message literally for one more minute after the match was over, and it was kind of like, let's just agree to get this all over with and go our merry ways. And, you know... (laughs) Everybody get out of here without breaking any legs or anything and we'll be happy and that's pretty much what happened. And and we didn't even
0: get that because Iwobi did pick up an injury and then let's record within within the way the Everton season's gone.
1: Which really, which really kind of sucked for him because you you know, these competitive guys against their old teams, I'm sure he was really wanting to make an impact. But, um, the other, the other thing is just that you could kind of tell this was a good illustration of Duncan Ferguson did a good job, but he was he was ultimately probably in over his head a little bit. And so the performance in this match kind of was like, yeah, we love you, Dunk. But this may this may not be a long term relationship thing.
0: Yeah. And I think that it's something that that we talked about. And I think that that Gino and I talked about um, after his first match when when Everton beat Chelsea. Uh, You know, you you can ride for a while on, on just the raw adrenaline of having that guy, you know, pumping his fists uh in the technical area and just telling you to go 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 go. Um and that's all well and good and, and he did an excellent job of that. But that that is not an effect that lasts forever. Um and there is always gonna have to be something deeper than just the flailing of arms and the hugging of ball boys and all that uh to really kind of power this team forward in the long term. Uh and I think he maybe deserved more of a chance than he got. And obviously, as you've alluded to, it's, it's a little bit of a raw deal to have your last match, uh, while you're, you're <laughs> the guy who's going to replace you is in the building. And I think that showed, but all in all, uh, agreed. I think Dunk was, was not, not ready for this job full time. And I think that we, we kind of saw that a little bit. He in wasn't the, ready for in the it.
1: He wasn't ready for it, but he did do a better job than I think David Unsworth ever did in his three yeah. separate stints in charge, and there's he, there's something to be said for that. But
0: there There is no reason for me to sit here and say right now, oh, Duncan Ferguson could never be the manager of a club like Everton,
1: which
0: I would absolutely say that about David Unsworth in a heartbeat for well, watching I would go him so manage far... a match. I would go so that. far
1: as to say, and we're kind of getting off track here, but that's, that's our thing. I would go so far as to say that Dunk should get a look from some lower league clubs in the summer. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, agreed. Um, so, so that's, that's really all that there is to say, um, about the Arsenal match. Um, one point is, is better than zero. And that's, that's what Everton came away with. So we'll, we'll be happy with that. Uh, and as we said, that, that was the, the last match, uh, with Dunk in charge and then Carlo Ancelotti took over training uh after being hired into the full-time Everton manager gig uh during the week. So so let's talk uh before we look at Burnley, let's talk just a little bit about what Ancelotti has done so far um and, and kind of what we saw in the week between the Arsenal match and the Burnley match and and how we think he impacts the club going forward. Uh, and I'll start by posing this this question to you Chris. Uh, how do you think that Carlo has handled himself in public since the appointment, uh, positively or negatively? Because we've now kind of gotten a chance to, to get a couple of press availability uh, and all that. What do we think about about how he's he's spoken as a representative of the club so far?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting, right, because I think anyone who is intellectually honest with themselves would say this appointment for, for the manager is not one where he is – necessarily convicted about the project itself. You know, Carlo Ancelotti mm-hmm. is 60, 61 years old, and Farhad Mashiri is paying him, I believe the scientific term is a butt-ton of money. And so, you know, I, I don't begrudge Ancelotti for taking the job on those, uh, with, with those terms, right? Like, that's a perfectly fine thing for a human yeah. to do is get paid. Um But at the same time, you know, through his early press conferences, I have been at least a little bit encouraged with the manner in which he's carried himself you know he he may well be taking this for the paycheck but at the same time it doesn't look like he's not taking it seriously you know you kind of, you kind of contrast it with Jose Mourinho in in London with Spurs <laughs> and you know Jose doesn't doesn't he doesn't even pretend what he's about you know he just wants to kind of it,
0: in, about Jose. <laughs> yeah, he he wants
1: to build the ego, come in, blow up a squad, win probably like one and a half trophies on average, and get out. And a, a, at least in the beginning, Carlo has seemed like he he genuinely cares about what what is going to happen here, and whether or not he's the right type of manager for this project remains to be seen. But I I don't get the sense that he's not going to to invest himself in it.
0: Yeah, I know, and I I think that's probably the right the right takeaway and I think that we saw in his demeanor on the touchline um as well uh, in in the match against Burnley today that he doesn't seem like a guy who's going to get get too high get too low I think he understands the and he is he has kind of displayed that he understands the scope of this project and that what happens in the short term yes is important um but this is a long term project at this point and I think he grasps that Based on, on the way that he's spoken and the way that he's behaved. And that's something that, that Everton needs, uh, obviously is, is somebody who's going to work with the club long term to, to get it to the places that it wants to be. Um, I, I know that, that both you and I, uh, and I think Gino to an extent as well, uh, were a little hesitant. Uh, about Ancelotti when, when the rumors first came in, you know, oh, he's, he's a big-name manager, but is he right for the job uh, and, and all of that. Uh, he is obviously here now uh, and, and will be here for the foreseeable future. Uh, has your final opinion on Ancelotti changed at all since he's kind of taken over, uh, or, or do we still kind of have the same reservations uh, about him managing this team?
1: Well, uh, hindsight is obviously, to any extent, a little bit 2020. 20, so, you know, his his comments in public and and whatnot have made me warm a little bit. But I, I I do still have the same reservations in terms of, you know, Ancelotti has been everywhere and seen it all. But the things that he's seen all of involve super clubs of you know Real Madrid, Juventus, Chelsea. AC Milan, all uh, Bayern Munich as well. Like, mm-hmm. he, he's, he's never taken a, a club that is flailing, not even treading water, but basically drowning in terms of their on-field results and uh, turn them into something worthwhile. And that's not to say that he's not capable, because I think that anyone with his resume kind of deserves our benefit of the doubt. And yeah. maybe you disagree with that, but like, I thought even just watching the match today that there was a different sense of you know when the camera cuts to the touch touch line you're like oh that's Carlo Ancelotti you know like he he's he looks like he he looks like he knows what his next decision is going to be and you could you couldn't always say that for Marco Silva so I do think there's value there and so I I would say that if if originally I was at like a a four out of ten on my positivity scale for this. Appointment, I'm probably at like a five and a half now.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm probably in, in about the same boat. I think that his approach to this match, to today's match against Burnley, um, is is something that you have to feel good about because, like you, I, I, I have this similar concerns about his ability to do more with less, which is certainly, you know, what he's going to have to do at Everton, at least for, for now. But, again, he, he comes in. Uh, obviously has a squad that is really hamstrung by injuries. Noah Wobey today. Uh, Walcott only available. <laughs> Ham- hamstrung, on the
1: bench. In a, hamstrung in a literal sense yeah. for Alex.
0: <laughs> um, still obviously missing a whole bunch of guys in terms of central midfield. Um, and he comes out with kind of a unique solution to the problem that helps his team create chances against a team that is very, very good at, at preventing chance creation and, and ultimately gets a win. Um, so for me, I don't know, I, I can't think of a whole lot more uh situations that that would have made me feel better after one match than what we saw today, which was an Everton team that was shorthanded, being used in a specific, very well thought out, very foreplanned tactical sense, well shorthanded to beat a specific type of team and it worked and it's a specific type of team that Everton have struggled to beat um, by and large so that to me it's early obviously um but but beating you know beating Burnley is is not nothing um so i, I uh, as as you do i feel a little bit better about this than i would have even you know 24 hours ago
1: well well just just the idea that he was able to even even if it was you know you could kind of point to one actual major tactical change from this game, the fact that he was able to implement that as effectively as he did within what like thirty six or forty eight hours, pretty yeah. impressive.
0: Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. And that you know I, I was stunned when they came out in in the three in the the back three as opposed to the the four four two. And we'll we'll talk more about this in a little bit. But I, just for that exact reason that I had assumed for sure they'd either come out in a four four two or 4231 just because that's what the 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 players are comfortable playing because that's what they have been playing all season and he just didn't have that much time to implement it and you know n- not that the setup was was not without its faults but everybody looked like they knew what they ought to be doing um which there's something to be said for that you know we think about what what happened with with Moiseevkin and the the substituting the substitute uh he, he did we're, not look like what he knew what he was supposed to be doing. It, it, and you know, and Dunk obviously had much more time during the week to to set up his uh, his system and talk about scenarios and what might happen in late game than than Ancelotti did. And and everybody very clearly knew what they were doing. And and he kind of changed the system in the second half uh, after he made his first substitution. And it was after that point that the goal was scored. Um, so. I'm, I'm talking I'm, – I'm realizing as I'm talking about this that I'm talking myself, even right now as, as we're recording, uh, into a higher opinion than I, I might have when I asked a question to you uh, five minutes ago now. Um, so encouraging signs, a, a, an encouraging start, uh, no doubt. Um, just to, to think a little bit about not just the big picture with, with Ancelotti, but kind of the individual uh impact. We expect that he'd have on on players. I'll, I'll ask you a, a two sided question, and we'll we'll focus on the first side, and then I I think that the the second side might might relate. Uh, what player or players do you think will benefit the most from Carlo Ancelotti taking having taken over at Everton now?
1: So my original answer to this question, when I saw the episode outline, was going to be Moise Um yeah, and I think that's
0: that's the the obvious answer that comes to you straight away
1: because they you know it immediately you're like oh they're both Italian they'll have no communication problems and there's obviously some truth to that and then you hear Carlos say that he tried to sign Moise at uh, Napoli and Everton got the deal across the line first. But after watching today's match, I think it might actually be Gilfie Sigurdsson. And I would be interested to hear your take on that. But it, it really looked like, you know, Fabian Delph was kind of in the midfield as somebody who was an accessory to building play. But the, the real aim was to get things going through Gilfie, who had probably his best match of the
0: season, I want to say, without thinking about it super hard. Um, it's certainly the best match that we've seen from him as an Everton player. Um, playing in a true central midfield role as opposed to a, a number right. 10 role. Right. Um, and, and it was kind of a hybrid role at at, at times, complicated for, for reasons that we'll get into. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that is a perfectly reasonable uh, stance as well. We talked a lot about under Marco Silva that everything was set up to to build through the wide areas um, and and basically no team... In the Premier League played through the center of the pitch in the attacking third less than, than Everton did under, under Marco Silva. And it's hard. It's hard for a number 10 to really get an impactful, uh, a meaningful impact on a match when the entire game plan revolves around Getting the ball out wide and whipping crosses in, and now we obviously saw plenty of that um, in this match yeah. as well. the goal obviously. was, the goal the, was the scored. Goal, yeah, the goal gets scored via uh, via cross. But again, a, a lot of what, what we saw and and kind of what happens on on the play with the goal, where the the midfielders are getting involved in the middle third and then playing balls in behind to the wingers or the fullbacks, as opposed to trying to play the ball over top to them or working the ball to the fullbacks in the middle third and working up through the wingers there that either way, even if the final product is getting generated from the wide areas, if you're working through the center of midfield to get there, that still is giving Gil- Gilfie Sigurdsson and other players, you know, Andre Gomes, uh, John Philippe Gabamin, whomever else it, it may be in our ever rotating carousel of central midfielders, uh, and a, an opportunity to impact the game that they didn't have in the Marco Silva system. Uh, and, so I think that's that's absolutely a good shout uh, for, for Gilfie Sigurdsson as well. And it really bore itself out in the numbers. I
1: think Gilfie completed 42 of 47 passes today, which you know I, our listeners may or may not pay close attention to that type of thing, but – as far back as I can remember, so I want to say 18, 24 months, that's the most passes he's completed in a match by a lot. And typically, he's at like 17, 18, 20 out of 28 or 29, somewhere in that range.
0: Yeah, and and, and part of that, again, is the role in that he was playing a little sure, bit deeper, yeah. which means you get on the ball a little bit more. But again, it, that that may be a good thing. You know, is, is Gilfie Sigurdsson the type of guy who needs to have – you know, 40 or 50 passes just so that he's involved in the game on the regular and can continue to impact the game. Uh, You know, I don't know. We've never seen that from him because it's never really been asked of him. I don't
1: don't know that he needs it, Adam, so much as his talent dictates that it's a good idea. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. He's – I know there's a lot of guilty complainers and guilty erasure out there, but in terms of raw footballing talent on Everton – there's there are a few few better and so the idea of getting him at the peak of his powers is you can't really go wrong
0: correct and yeah and i i I know i talked about it a fair bit under silva and it, it just it does bear reiterating that i don't think marco silva's usage of gilfie sigurdsson really at any point in his tenure here did him any favors um you know obviously Gilfie's willingness to press and to kind of be the second forward in in when Everton was out of possession to kind of set up that pressing 442 um was was a good use of his skills but it was not a way in which you could get him involved when the team was in possession um and and we saw that today in a way that that we had not for much of the the Silva tenure um, so I, I think that's, that's a good answer to the question of, of who stands to benefit the most from, from Carlo Ancelotti's introduction. Um, I'm curious your thoughts if you have a, a player in mind as to who maybe is least <laughs> happy to see Ancelotti take over and, and who, who may see game time or opportunity decrease now that the Italian's in charge. So, this may seem like a cop out because of his recent form, but I am gonna go ahead and
1: say Michael Keane, and it's yeah. not, be- it's not because of his form necessarily, but after having seen what Ancelotti asked his center backs to do today, particularly Seamus Coleman and Mason Holgate, with the overlapping and kind of just, you know, jumping into the attack as the situation called for it, uh, Michael Keane can't do that. And, no. And, um, no. you know, he, he's, I would say, With Mason Holgate's renaissance this season, which I'm happy about, and Yuri Mina's pedigree and Seamus Mm -hmm. Coleman's general quality, Michael Keane is probably the worst player in the Everton's defense with a ball at his feet. I I feel like that's pretty fair to say. And he's also, at the same time, the least athletic. And yeah, that's, kind and of that's a,
0: not an argument. <laughs> there's there's no argument to be had about that whatsoever. So it's kind of
1: it's kind of the cocktail of death, right? Like there are certainly things that Michael Keane is good at, like being large, and he he actually does read the game fairly well. But the things that Ancelotti were asking was asking his defenders to do today, Michael Keane would have had a really difficult time with him.
0: Yeah, uh, I think that that's that's a a good one. The other one that that I will point to, and again, I think it it speaks to um, some of what Everton did today and look to do today, uh, I'll go with Tom Davis. Um, I, I think I, I thought it, about that. Yeah, yeah. Tom, uh, Tom obviously the energy that he brings to the midfield is is not arguable. Um, and has occasionally shown the ability to play the final pass uh, into the attacking third at times, maybe even better than some of his central midfield counterparts. Um, But the passing accuracy has just not ever been reliable um, from Davis. He he misplaces simple passes far too frequently. And if Ancelotti is going to be looking to be building a team that possesses the ball a lot, um, you you can't be doing that. Uh, You cannot play that way, especially if, if part of the plan is going to be using defenders in advanced positions more going forward, those turnovers in the midfield, when you've got guys from the back pushing forward like that, are absolutely cancerous. You you, you just can't have them. Well, yeah. Um, and, and, and the other
1: thing, too, is that Carlo is not
0: attached to any of these players, literally none
1: of them, right? Like, yeah. so it's, it's not going to take any skin off his nose to tell Tom to go take a seat at the end of the bench. You know, you can. <laughs> he he is used to to managing players that are kind of like luxury cars right so like you could you can see a, a real world in which whenever andre gomez and morgan Schneiderling get back those types of guys are going to really fit his his mo and that's not to say that tom davis is not a doesn't have a future as a premier league player or whatever but if if we're going to stick with the Ancelotti project i don't i don't really see a world in which the tom davises of the world are going to be i don't i just don't see how they're going to be useful to us
0: yeah uh, and it'll be interesting uh for me as well to see where uh, jean philippe Gabamin fits in uh when when he gets back as well i mean we saw so little of him it's tough to say what what he is or isn't capable of um he's big <laughs> yeah. You, and that's but that's about all we know, you know, and and if if a need for a technical player in the midfield uh is a must going forward in whatever a long-term Carlo Ancelotti system looks like, can he be that guy? Uh, I I don't I don't know, maybe, maybe he can. Um maybe he can't. Who can say? Not not us based on what you know what little we got of him early in the season. Um but it's just something else that i think will be interesting to to think about and there's a world in in which in in 3 months if we come back to this question of you know who who was hurt the most by the appointment of carlo ancelotti it, it could wind up being gabbamin for the for similar reasons that it's uh it was tom davis
1: yeah uh, and just to to put a wrap on that conversation real quick i just looked up a very helpful website by the way premierinjuries.com keeps track of um all the Premier League injuries around the table and Gabamin's potential return date is listed as January 18th, which kind of actually snuck up on me. But at the yeah, same it, time, that, that's far enough away to where you can easily see that Carlo could have, you know, things kind of up and rolling by then and be like, right, I don't really have time for this.
0: Yeah. Um And again, because Gabamin is a young player, because it, it seems like Ancelotti has taken a longer term, Approach to this, Um you would hope that that would not be the case, but I mean, if what is working is working, eh, it, it's, it's always tough for, for managers to significantly change things that have been working and it's a good well, problem to have if we get to that point, but yeah, let, and, let, let's and, see where we're at when we get there.
1: <laughs> and Schneiderlin should be back well before that. And the other yeah. thing is that I, he struggled a lot this season, but Fabian Delph actually was quite useful today. Yeah, and was. so, if, if that if that pairing gets going, you know, it's going to be tough. But anyway, m- let's move on.
0: Yeah. Um just one last uh quick quick hitter um on Inchalotti. Uh looks to have promoted Duncan Ferguson. Looks like Dunk is is going to be kind of his right-hand man uh going forward at Everton uh based on what we've seen uh, from Dunk in, in the last couple of weeks. Good idea? Right I
1: I think I think it's a great idea. Uh, Dunk Dunk got the the right hand he got the seat right next to Carlo today which you know under Silva he was always kind of tucked into the back of the dugout mm-hmm. or whatever. And based on what we saw and what we heard from Dunk in his couple weeks in charge, I think there's a real connection with the players that Ancelotti's not going to have because he hasn't been here that long. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's also the amount of the amount that you Give value to this is kind of it changes based on person to person, but there's a real sense in which Ferguson is connected to the fans and connected to the to the club, and I think that that's important too for keeping pe- keeping people online and that sort of thing. Uh, based on what I saw out of Dunks managerial ability, I I don't have a problem with it.
0: Yeah, and I think it's just it's interesting because when you talk about managers um, of the pedigree that Ancelotti is, you know, usually they've kind of got their established backroom staff uh, that kind of follow them wherever they go. Um, and it's interesting to me that that Ancelotti would be willing to basically take on an, uh, what is to him, obviously not to us, but to him, an outsider, and say, you know, uh, I'm going to upset what my normal approach in terms of my assistance would be because I see in you, Duncan Ferguson, something – that nobody else that I normally work with can provide um, the extent to which that is really the case at this point who can say, um, but it, it means, it means more coming from a guy with Ancelotti's pedigree than it does from anybody else. Because I, I gar you know, I, I don't know any of the folks offhand, but I'm sure Ancelotti has got one or more assistants that have followed him around for the last 15 years um, and have now gotten knocked down a peg to make room for managed three Premier League matches, Duncan Ferguson. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean,
1: and and who knows? It may or may not work out. I would, again, as I mentioned earlier, I would not be surprised at all if, you know, Duncan gets some interviews in the summer and even if Carlo maybe says, you know, sends an email or whatever, makes a phone call and kind of nudges some people and say, hey, give this guy a shot.
0: Alternatively, what if he managed the U23s? Oh, man,
1: don't get and, me started. And David Unsworth
0: Dave. went, I don't know or care where. Anyway, long, let's long walk down off that short road. Short <laughs> um, So at any rate, that kind of closes out some of our initial thoughts on, on Carlo Ancelotti, at least insofar as uh, as they were concerned up to the Burnley match today, which is the, the next talking point on our agenda. Uh, the Toffees took on Son, Sean Dyche's side uh, today, day of recording, boxing day uh and came away with a victory courtesy of an eightieth minute goal from Dominic Calvert Lewin. Um just some stats to put the match in perspective. Everton were absolutely as you would expect against uh, a team like Burnley, the, the dominant team in possession. They had about sixty-eight percent uh of possession completed five hundred and nineteen passes to Burnley's two hundred and fifty uh, completed eighty one point five percent of their passes and uh a nice 69% of passes in the nice. opponent's half, which is pretty good. It's pretty yeah. good. It's pretty nice. Um, and ultimately outshot Burnley 21 to six, had five shots on target to Burnley's zero. Um, so I, I think that the, the first thing that we all kind of noticed when here in the States, we rolled out of bed uh, out in the, the UK, folks rolled up to the match. Um, that that tactically this this was going to be a little bit of an adventure. We weren't entirely sure how much, uh because the Well the the, the social the,
1: media team for Everton was even just like shrug. So yeah, the the
0: the posts on social media had Everton in a in a four four two with with Jabril Sidibe at at right midfield and Seamus Coleman at right back. Um so th- that was one possible interpretation of of how things would go um when in reality it, it wound up being what what I think you'd have to describe as a a 352 with the the center backs as Holgate, Mina and and Coleman uh mm-hmm. yep. and then in the center of midfield uh, Sigurdsson, Delph, and Bernard uh, which which
1: that was the part that I was not ready for
0: Yeah I uh Dinia and uh and Sidibe as as the wingbacks uh wing slash wingers depending on how you want to look at it and, and then the expected Richarlison and and Calvert-Lewin up front. Um initial thoughts from from you on on what <laughs> how how you initially reacted to to that perhaps would be the a good place to start.
1: So so there are two things here mainly and I'll let you speak to them more than me but just initially the extent to which the outside center backs got involved in the build up play, you know, crossing the halfway line and in Seamus Coleman's case, I mean, he was, he was all the way up in the penalty area on multiple occasions. Um, it kind of surprised me, you know, one of them would go up and the other would stay back and it kind of turned into like a back two for a little bit in possession, mm-hmm. which was, which was a little bit wild. And then Bernard as the, I felt like kind of as the game grew, and went along, he kind of kept coming more centrally and kept coming more mm-hmm. centrally until eventually, you know, in the minutes before he got subbed off, he's basically just playing in the hole. And that's actually when Everton started looking the most dangerous. And I will cop to being, having been anti-Bernard in attacking midfield for a long time. I don't think he has the, the, the size or the strength to get bumped around by Premier League center backs like that. But he he could hold onto the ball and he's got some pretty interesting creative ideas and so for whatever reason it was working and those two things were the main things that i noticed i think ultimately the center backs getting involved kind of made more of a, a long term impact than bernard did but uh what do you think
0: i i had this discussion with uh our manager over at the at royal blue mercy uh calvin earlier today I'm less convinced than some perhaps that that, that back three with the overlapping Coleman, uh, it, it is, is a long-term plan of Ancelotti's. I, I don't know. It, it struck me much more as a, hey, this is Burnley and Burnley doesn't want the ball. So you can get away with doing some pretty wacky shit. Well, uh, also
1: I have, I have X amount of healthy players
0: and these are the best yeah, 11. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and I think very, very much today, uh, Ancelotti said, all right, I've only got 15, you know, however many, 15, let's say, you know, healthy first team players. And I, I know who my 11 best are. And I, I, I don't think at this point you would get a lot of argument that the starting lineup was the best healthy 11 players. No, none right me. Yeah. Um, and then say, how do I make this happen? Um and it it worked quite well. Um definitely Holgate did get forward a little bit, but it was much, much more um down the right with um with Sidibe and, and Coleman to the point where you know when the attack went down the right, it was basically like Seamus Coleman was a standard right back and, and Sidibe was a, a standard right winger. And then Bernard would kind of cheat in from the left into the hole. To, to really fill out a, a midfield three of Bernard ahead of Sigurdsson and, and Delph, and then Dinya would play kind of a dual left, left wing, right. left back role over on the left hand side. He occasionally got isolated, which was really the only thing about this that I, I didn't like because he's just so much better when he's got a, a winger or a central midfielder. Well, some remember, of, some of our
1: with. best work last season was what, after Bernard and Dinya got really you know, acclimated to one another.
0: Yeah, and and I understand why that you know that happened the way that it did, and there's no no argument for me uh, ultimately on the system as a whole. Um, but that that was really the only issue is that that Dinya did did get isolated at at times. But really, the the thrust of the attack was an effort to create um and an a overwhelm of of numbers on that right hand side. That got Burnley into trouble either in possession after they had just won possession back and, and Everton trying to hit on the counter press or just through a straight attack down that right hand side, especially since that was the side that Gilfie Sigurdsson was operating on. So you kind of had this triangle of Sadibe bombing forward, Coleman coming in behind and, and Gilfie playing as, as kind of the third point on that triangle coming out of the center of midfield. And I don't think it's an accident that it's it's from that group of players that ultimately yep.
1: the goal comes yeah.
0: from. Um you know Sigurdsson and Sidibé put put pressure uh, on Burnley on the the Burnley left Everton right wing. Uh Gilfey makes an outstanding technical play uh, to to keep a ball in after winning a tackle, gets it out to Sidibé, Sidibé's in space and and he puts the cross into Calvert-Lewin who puts it home. Um like I said, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that this is long-term the way that Ancelotti is going to want to play. Uh, I don't think we have enough center backs for it. I think that ultimately you want to be able to play guys like Iwobi and Theo Walcott from the start, and I don't think that this setup really allows for that. Um, but on the day, for what it was worth, um, it was a, a really inspired tactical decision-making from the manager, to get the most out of a limited side against a team that is very very difficult to break down and ultimately well, it got us the 3 points.
1: That that that's kind of the the final thing for me on this is that you would not usually see out of Marco Silva an ability to just to to literally list your best 11 players out and then figure out how to make them work together, right? Like Yeah. You would you would get some mixing and matching from Marco in in ways that he thought a certain set of eleven players would fit together, but it was very rarely your best eleven players. And Carlo immediately comes in and says, Okay, look, these are obviously the best eleven healthy guys, and I can make this work.
0: Yeah, and, and when we when we spoke about Ancelotti in, in the past couple of weeks and the potential for him coming on, I think one of the things that that we kind of honed in on as a positive as one of the things that, that we did like um was that unlike a lot of big-name managers, he does not come to Everton with a specific system associated with his play. He's not Jurgen Klopp. He's not Pep Guardiola. He's not Maurizio Sarri. You know, the man is, is going to whatever system makes sense with the players that he has, with the players that he can bring in and build around, that's the system he's going to play. Um, and today, it, it was this weird Possession-based, occasionally counter-pressing side that with a back three and overlapping center backs, but really only overlapping one center back on the right and kind of leaving Holgate back and creating overflow situations on a, on a wing and it you know all, all relatively complex stuff that he implemented in 48 hours and yep. that he used to beat one of the best defensive sides in the league. I mean, in terms of debuts, you're not going to do much better than that.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that the only complaint that I had was that Yuri Mina and I hate to even say this, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, since he scored the winning goal, they were both a little bit wasteful with their headers, especially after yeah. Sigurdsson created some really nice stuff off of indirect set pieces. But ultimately, I think it's really difficult to complain, with, complain about this result.
0: Yeah, and I think that – uh one of the the ways in in which you can tell that I think is, is that I I'm, I want to ask you for your man of the match your Everton man of the match from this game and I think uh, it's always a good sign when you ask that question and you go hell I I think I could probably give it to three or four guys and I think uh, I think in this case today that's that's true I I think you, you'd make it, you could pretty easily make a short list of Sidibe, coleman Coleman uh, Sigurdsson and and probably Yeri Mina. Uh, and obviously Dom gets the goal as well. So I mean, that's that's I've just listed off five players like it's nothing. That's half the side that I think you could make an argument for.
1: Usually yeah, my, a pretty
0: good sign. Uh,
1: my my list was Bernard, um, Sidibe, yes, and I
0: didn't even and, list Bernard. But you're right.
1: <laughs> uh, my list was Bernard, Sidibe, and Coleman. I think I have to ultimately probably give it to Sidibe because you know, um it's a good header by Calvert Lewin. But Sidibe, I think it may have even been like a first time cross. His his crossing is just ridiculous, and, and he really is more, I don't know, I don't want to say that he's necessarily more offensively capable than Coleman. It's just a lot different, if that makes sense. It is. And,
0: no, that absolutely, so, and I, this is one of the things that folks who have had a beef with Coleman, and this is even going back a couple of years, have always pointed to that he does not complete uh, a particularly high number of his crosses, um, which is true. Seamus Coleman, for as good an attacking right back as he has been in this league for as long as he is, cannot cross the ball for Dick. He yes, cannot right. do it. He is a well, terrible and it's, it's, been, ball. It's, it's
1: been exacerbated by Leighton Baines on the other side of the field, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and,
0: and, but he does things in other ways very well, and I still think – He's a a hell of a dribbler, which a lot of people
1: don't give him credit for. He's an
0: outstanding dribbler. He's still got very, very good pace for a guy who is his age and, you know, broke his leg not that long ago. Um, He's very good at working intricate one-twos with his wingers or central midfielders, especially when he gets inside or down around the 18, which is just not something that you see from a lot of fullbacks who have the sort of pace that he does. Um, But Jabril Sidibe, god damn, the dude can can cross the ball, uh, you know, way better than Coleman and better than just about anybody else out there. Uh, so, so I think you have to ask, um, how how quickly did, uh, did Carlo Ancelotti hop on the phone after this match to call up Monaco and say, Hello, Monaco, here is your 14 million pounds for uh, Jabril Sidibe. We are keeping him. Thank you. Do not call this number. We're having it disconnected. You're blocked.
1: <laughs> I, I don't uh, I don't really understand how it was negotiated to 14 million pounds for a player who was going to start for the World Cup winners until he got hurt uh, yeah. in Russia. Like I, what what happened? Did Marcel Brands have like some blackmail photos? And and I mean, it's not like Monaco is. Uh... Well, he was. Uh, remember, Sidibe was uh, one of the preeminent stars of Monaco's title winning team that had. Bernardo Silva and Bakayoko and Kylian Mbappe and those guys. I mean, he was they they were one of the sides that really kind of committed to their first eleven players and stuck with them all season long. And Sidibe was part of that.
0: Yeah, and and Monaco was terrible last year. Uh, you know, almost got relegated. Bad. They sit seventh in, in the the French league now, which is you know. It's not awful, but really for a club with the resources that Monaco has, seventh in the French league is, is not good enough. It's only good. It only feels right. good because they almost got relegated last year, but that also was obviously an unacceptable result. So, you know, to, to look at a team whose, whose right backs are, uh, Benjamin Henriks and, and Ruben Aguilar, uh, sure, I guess, um, and, and say, yeah, Let's give away uh, not give away, but let's be willing to sell uh a fullback who's gonna still get called into the best national team in the world for a pittance and uh, i mean let's you know honestly, fourteen million pounds is not a pittance to u r i but I mean Farhad Moshiri you know sweats it, that out in his sleep yeah <laughs> i, I uh...
1: It's, it's really something else, and I, I don't think at this point that that transaction is, is really up for debate. Like, that's, that's open and shut, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, uh, no, he is absolutely, 100%, um, going, you know, gonna, gonna be at Everton past this season. There's just no way. But John Joe Kenny! Yeah. Well, it is, it's interesting, because Kenny has had a very good season at Shulka. You know, has has been a regular starter for a top four team in the Bundesliga, and I know we've talked about this a little bit. Um, I don't, I don't rightly know. <laughs> what my team... theory
1: presupposes is that Sidibe is a winger.
0: But we've already got so many of them too.
1: <laughs> hey, yeah, but Walcott's not going. to – I mean, he's not going to be around that long. Yeah. I,
0: well, at, at any rate, we're. It, it's a good problem to have. It to, is. To, yes. to feel like going into next season this team is going to have three three fullbacks who have proven themselves you know on the, the top you know in a top league in the world uh, that Sidibe here uh Coleman here and and Kenny uh in the Bundesliga good good problem to have don't hate um, it definitely don't hate it what what i did hate a little bit uh as i often do uh was the officiating in this match uh interesting decision by Anthony Taylor to completely forget to bring uh, his cards out onto the field for this match. At least that's what I have to assume because somehow zero players got booked in this game. Chris, do, do do you have any insight on this? Do you think that he like put on the wrong pair of shorts and the cards
1: I, just weren't in there?
0: I I mean he doesn't strike me as the brightest fellow, so I mean maybe.
1: Okay, so so. How many fouls do you think happened in this game cumulatively?
0: Uh, I can tell you. I don't even need to. Okay. Guess. Oh well, I I've, I've got it open give too. Me a yeah. Uh, oh, just oh, guess. Oh my. Yeah. Oh my. It's it's, uh, so it's 29. 29 fouls between between the two teams. So so that's a foul every three minutes, more or less, if you're not very good at math. That's um, me. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So that's a foul <laughs> just about every three minutes. Um, and no, a woof. foul every three minutes
1: and no cards. I'm not even, I'm not even necessarily, although I feel, I would feel justified in doing so. I'm not even necessarily complaining that he didn't card Burnley. It's just this, this, the
0: statistical improbability of (laughs) that that you have that many fouls committed. Let's, uh, just, just for the sake of comparison, the Arsenal, uh, Arsenal Everton match, which saw five yellow cards had 21 fouls. Who, who refereed that match? Can you tell? Uh, wasn't that, wasn't that Michael Oliver? I think, I, I, think don't, I, I don't remember offhand and it's not listed here. I I suppose it doesn't
1: matter all that much. All of uh, them are mostly the same except for Mike Dean, who is wonderful. Uh, <laughs>
0: wonderful in that he is terrible, yes. <laughs> he's
1: he's that was Kevin Friend, so he you know, also incompetent.
0: Uh, okay, yeah, you're right. Uh you know, I there were there were one or two, I think, for both teams that when they happened, I went, Oh, that's a yellow. You know, casually, not like waving my hands around like a crazy person, you know, like, hey, you just broke our player or hey, our player, why did you just do that?
1: Um, but, well, the but, problem wasn't the, the individual instances, right? It was the consistent infringement. Yeah, yeah. Like, eventually you have to get a yellow card just by the rules. And I think the, the most glaring instance of that was. I want to say it was maybe Charlie Taylor. I don't remember because there's no reason for me to learn the names of Burnley players, but (laughs) Richarlison has picked up the ball in the midfield and is just storming into the penalty area. Like, you know, like when he, when he gets ahead of steam, it's really difficult to stop him. And the guy behind him just cuts him off and knocks him over and completely kills the attack and all of the momentum and is nowhere near the ball. And I'm just sitting there like, that's literally the definition of a tactical yellow card. Where is the yeah. card,
0: Anthony? My uh, – if if you're keeping score at home, this is pretty impressive, this stat that I have just pulled. So there – what did we say? 29 fouls, right, in this match? Yes. Yeah. Charlie Taylor committed for and suffered for. So I think it's safe <laughs> to say – It that might have been him, yeah. A- most of the action was around <laughs> Charlie Taylor, which makes sense. He was playing left back, so going up against the – combined forces of uh Coleman, Sidibe and, and Sigurdsson. But uh yeah, another just another average questionable day in football officiating. Someday uh, we you know every day we we inch closer to uh the robot overlords at least taking over our officiating, which, you know, when the robot uprising happens, at least we'll have that, I guess. We, we can't
1: um, talk about the officiating from this match without mentioning the linesman with eyes like in the side of his head that, oh also,
0: that they, they, also that are also like
1: a periscope. I think <laughs> when he yes. he he called that Jordan pictured Jordan Pickford. Pardon me had handled the ball outside of the area, uh, but the the geometry on that was just incredibly questionable.
0: <laughs> and and Pickford immediately came out to uh, to the head referee who, who admittedly. You know, we've, we've just spent a fair bit of time making fun of Anthony Taylor on, on that particular play, the one where, where Pickford was adjudged to have carried the ball out of the box. He's got no choice but, but to give way to the linesman. He's too far away to make a, a decision himself. If the linesman says it happens, he has to go along with it. But you could see Pickford immediately go out to Taylor, like, how? How, how, how did he see that? that? Yeah. Tell? How, how can a guy who is standing perpendicular to the line that he is judging Judge the line. That's right. Perpendicular. I just went geometry on this. That's how serious hey, it is.
1: This is, this is now a math <laughs> podcast. It is written. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. Uh, one more quick hitter on the, uh, on the Burnley match. And, and I, I spoke about this a little bit, but I'm curious, uh, into some of, some of your thoughts. I, I think we agreed last season, uh, Lucas Dinia was, you know easily Everton's best player last year yeah, um looked like certainly. looked like a, a top 5 left back in the world um and he's been he hasn't been bad this season not by any means but but he hasn't quite looked the same either um and I'm curious as to your thoughts uh after another showing today that was decent but only decent um what what we might be looking at in terms of why that might be the case
1: so I'm going to offer, I, I, I think, well, first of all, let me back up. I think the easy answer is to just say like, you know, Bernard got hurt and Bernard was in and out of the lineup and that's kind of, they have kind of a yin-yang thing going on, but I'm actually going to go a little bit farther back than that and say that I think, you know, last season Kurt Zuma played left side at center back for the, gosh, what ninety five percent of the matches, yeah. and um he was excellent, and they're also their buddies, you know they play for the same national team and speak the same language, and all this kind of thing and also Andre Gomez um played a lot of left sided midfield last season, and that kind of triangle for lack of a better term in the spine that between Zuma Denier and Gomez that they had going on, I think just i I don't think that Lucas has lost any of his ability or anything like that. I just think the adjustment period has been really hard for him after getting so settled in those that kind of that holy trinity of of talented players last year and I think that with different guys behind him now you know at first it was Mina or Keen or Holgate and you know in front of him it's the Wobbe or Bernard or whatever the case may be into to, to his midfield side it's Fabian Delph or whatever, that that's difficult for anybody. And so I, I do think that there's a real sense in which we can ask for more for him because of what we saw last season. But there's also some mitigating circumstances there.
0: Yeah, and I, I think uh, I the Bernard situation and the the situation regarding the winger that he's playing with, I I think it is uh, worth reiterating because I you know I think Bernard today obviously had a, a freer role, but by and large, when Bernard plays out on that left wing, you, you kind of know what you 're going to get from him right he's he's a guy who 's going going to yeah. play pretty pretty wide uh you know Dinya doesn't isn't the sort of player who's looking to to have a, an inward cutting left winger so that he can use his pace to burn down the the space on the left hand side uh, that 's right. not him he 's not got that kind of pace; he wants somebody who's going to stay with him. Relatively speaking, hug the touchline with him, um, and work one twos with him. And, and Bernard was that guy. And, and, you look at the other guys who have played that, that wing. Uh, Richarlison is absolutely a guy who drifts toward the center. And I mean, that's, that's where you want him drifting in toward the center from that left wing because he gets so many goals that way. Um, Alex Awobi, who is a guy uh, who, who probably is central
1: midfielder. Exactly.
0: <laughs> or at least certainly has central midfielder tendencies when he was used on that left wing. It was in a way such that he was kind of expected to share creative responsibility with the number 10. Uh, and, and then obviously Tom Davis, who we saw there a couple of times uh, as well, who is a central midfielder, just <laughs> point, point blank, blank cool is, is stop. A central, yeah. is a central mid- midfielder uh, playing out on the left. Uh, and and it, it makes the style that, that Lucas wants to play, complicated um you know in in the same way that if you put bernard and we've not seen this and, and maybe for good reason if you put bernard out on the right uh you know with sidibe or coleman who want that space to to run in and use their their pace and their dribbling to get in behind it it would fuck with them too um so i i'm not super concerned about it uh i, I thought bernard had a very very good game today i'm hoping that that maybe we'll be able to see him in a more traditional role going forward so that we can get the best out of that combination of players. Um, I, I did find it interesting, though, um, in large part relative, you know, over the last, really the last year or so, um Lucadinia had been the, the guy taking the majority of set pieces and had kind of overtaken Gylfi Sigurdsson, in that role. And, and it was a hundred percent Siggy today and his service was very good. So that didn't take the commitment.
1: one direct free kick that went off the top of the wall. Yes. Um, but I do agree with you because I immediately noticed after like the third or fourth corner, did did not take any of them? Yeah, And I don't, it, I mean, I can only assume that's a, a conscious decision, right? Like, yeah.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That doesn't happen by accident. So, so, uh, you know, whether that's, whether that's Ancelotti just saying, I prefer Sigurdsson, whether that's Ancelotti having watched the team play and said, Hey, you know, I don't think that this guy's in the best of form right now. Maybe let's not, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, it's just another thing to kind of add into the consideration. Um, obviously Everton was not lost without having him there because Sigurdsson was very, very good, uh, from dead balls today, but just something else to think about uh just just keep an eye on it is what i'll say uh and well i i frankly i don't suspect that we'll see luca Digne uh play in everton's next game which is by the time you're hearing this tomorrow uh it is on december 28th which is Two days after December 26th, whoever makes the Premier League fixtures just really needs to be a, taken out a back dick. a shot. Yeah. Um, so, so this Saturday, uh, Everton heads to St. James's Park to take on Newcastle United. Uh, Newcastle is coming off, uh, well, you could call it uh, a, a game that they played. Uh, they, they got bludgeoned by, by Manchester United today, 4-1, uh, to one, which is impressive given that Manchester United are now uh, bad, I think is the technical term. Um,
1: the Mason-Greenwood ascension continues. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but uh, Newcastle, uh, through 19 matches, sit in 10th place, which if you had offered to Newcastle at the start of the season, uh, any Newcastle supporter probably would have bit your hand off at the opportunity because Rafa Benitez is gone. There was so little investment into the side. There there was a lot of concern um, going into well, the season. I, I, I think I just, about Newcastle.
1: When I started thinking about this, I was like, Man, I don't get it. They didn't really add anybody of note in the off season aside from Joel Linton and Alan Saint Maximin who eh, very in quality there. it's kind of just whatever. And I was like, man, Rafael Benitez is clearly a better manager than Steve Bruce, right? Like he's, yeah. he's achieved <laughs> just a ridiculous amount in the, his career. And then I pulled up oldunderstat.com.
0: Oh, oh, you're going to beat me to it then because boy, howdy, it's an interesting situation that they've got on their hands. Well,
1: just, j- just go take a look because I'll have you know that the magpies, God love them have the fewest expected goals in the premier league. And it's
0: actually not particularly close, is it? Uh, no, no, it's not. And, and really what, what Newcastle has, has done. And, and let's also be clear, uh, their defense, not good. Uh, <laughs> no, according, to un- yeah. according to Understat, they have conceded the fourth most, uh, expected goals against. So this is not a, situ- this is not a Burnley situation, uh, is, is what we're saying really, uh, The reason that Newcastle United is currently in 10th place and not (laughs) not in the relegation battle is that Jonjo Shelby has weirdly scored five goals on one expected goal. That's it. That's the whole story. That is everything you need to know about Newcastle United in a nutshell this year is right there. John Joe Shelby leads this team with five goals. No other player has more than two, and no forward has more than one. That's, that's, that's Newcastle United. Magic. Just you know. yeah. Uh, mean... And, and don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, hey, good for John Joe Shelby. Great. I'm I'm very happy that that he is weirdly just getting buckets are you, are you... on <laughs> shots of no value whatsoever, but. That, that's it. That is the only reason because those five goals are really, what's, what's Newcastle got? Five, how many wins? Newcastle has seven wins and, and really I, I think he's responsible with those, a couple of those just weird howlers, screamers, whatever you want to call them, you know, has, has probably earned them 10 of the points that they have right now and, and they've only got 25 and, and 15 points, well, 15 points would put them in, uh, the, in a relegation place.
1: <laughs> well, and I think I, I I think it's it's coming home to roost, right? Because like uh, December fourteenth, they they lost to Burnley. Uh, December twenty first, they beat Crystal Palace, but got outperformed there in terms of the XG numbers. And then they just got absolutely whipped by Manchester United. And so uh, eventually, these numbers they come they come calling, and you know you try as you might, you can't outrun math. And so. I I just, I don't see any reason that Everton should not take the game to him, even on the road, you know, really. uh,
0: Newcastle's style of play, you know, has, has been very, very straightforward. Um, This is a team that looks to defend a lot in numbers. You know, this is not going to be uh, in any significant way different than the Burnley match. Burnley Uh, Burnley's possession numbers after today's round of uh, matches, uh, Burnley averages 42.5% possession per match, which is next to last in the league. Uh, Newcastle averages 38.9%, which is last in the league, obviously. Uh, And Newcastle completes 73.2% of their passes, which is the third lowest in the league. Um, So, you know, they they are who they are. Um, And as we've We've said there's nothing wrong with that style of play. Burnley has, has made, the, made themselves a home in the Premier League out of that exact style of play. And gosh darn it, you know, they still absolutely deserve to be here. Um, but, but the numbers for Newcastle say that they're playing that defensive style, uh, but they're, they're not defending very well. And also they're not scoring when they get chances on the break unless it's John Joe Shelby outside the 18-yard box. I mean, it's
1: I, – I, I think the ultimate takeaway here is that it's a house of cards.
0: Yeah, it, it should be. It should be. Football's a weird sport, but, hey, if your if you're striker it has one goal this year, and that's it. Joel Linton has one Premier League goal this year, and no other player who I would categorize as a striker has scored for this team. You, you cannot have long-term success in the Premier League when your strikers have combined for one Premier League goal.
1: <laughs> Are you telling me that Andy Carroll has not scored yet? I'm Andy, shocked. Carroll,
0: Andy Carroll has not scored yet, but bite your tongue, he does have two assists. I, I don't rightly know why. I, mean, I, do, I never does. thought of
1: Andy Carroll as a particularly creative player. No, little...
0: no, no, no. He, he has two assists on 0.5 expected assists. So so that's overachieving to, too. Yeah. You're okay. correct to think that he shouldn't, but he does. He does. You, you know, <laughs> yes. after,
1: after my wife falls asleep tonight and the kids are all cozy in bed with their new Christmas pajamas, I'm going to turn my phone's brightness way down low and look up Andy Carroll assists on YouTube.
0: Are, are you sure that they have those on YouTube? <laughs> it, it might <laughs> be a have different site. a slightly less, let's say, for work site than that? <laughs> it, it's very possible. TBD, I'll update you. Nice. Something to look forward to for next week. Uh, so, obviously, that is all very much a roundabout way of saying that neither of us particularly rate this Newcastle United team very highly, despite the fact that they are in 10th place and, and look, you know, at, at this point anyway, to be pretty safe from the, the relegation battle. All of that said, uh, is there a player on this Newcastle team, John Joe Shelby or otherwise, um, who does worry you uh, going into this match? Yeah, it's John Joe Shelby. It <laughs> I is mean, John Joe Shelby. Okay, yeah, that's, that's the answer. I, you know, I think all jokes aside,
1: there is clearly somebody with a talent there for shooting outside the box, right? Like I, I think yeah. he's probably. Done enough to prove that be it be at this season or in seasons past, and Everton do not have the type of central midfielder like Adrissa Gay or even John Philippe Gabaman who are particularly physically adept at closing down a a shooter. Right, so that scares that scares me a little bit. DeAndre Yedlin scares me a little bit if he plays just because he's so freaking fast,
0: very very fast, video game speed.
1: But uh other than that I mean it's it's kind of a roster that's just kind of, it, it doesn't it's I wouldn't I wouldn't even pick him on FIFA. <laughs> uh
0: I w- what I'm going to say may shock you. Oh uh, so I need you to sit down. Okay. I I have to admit that I am a little scared of Andy Carroll. And I it's not even for – I don't have a good reason to feel that way, and I know that I don't. It just feels like a thing that Everton would do, No, that's
1: it? fair. Yeah, it's it's like if we pre- play Crystal Palace. I'm always worried that Fenteke. Christian Betteke will, yeah. <laughs> will get off of his, his schneid against us because that's just what happens to us. No, yeah, that's fair. I could see that. You know coming in eighty second minute at at nil nil and scoring yeah. some sort of bullshit set piece goal nope I get, yeah, I get it. He's, again
0: he's big, he's strong we you know everton was was much better uh, defending set pieces on the whole today than than we've we've seen for most of the season and certainly better better than last season, but he's a guy who's a danger in those sorts of situations, and they remain especially against a team that doesn't generate a whole lot from open play. Uh, set pieces remain the the best opportunity you know for a team like Newcastle to score on everton uh, and and he's he 's a danger in those situations um, so so let 's just take a moment to recap. Uh, we have just said that the two players that scare us the most on everton 's <laughs> next opponent are John Joe Shelby and andy Carroll uh, so is there so, any is there wait. any excuse oh go ahead i 'm pretty sure that John Joe shelby and
1: Andy Carroll played for played together for a Liverpool team not so very long ago.
0: Maybe that's why we're scared of them. It's a deep, it's a like, it's a deep repressed memory of just like, oh God, what if? Oh, well, I know Andy Carroll had a big goal for Liverpool against Everton. Thank I, you for I, reminding me of that. Oh, yeah, I I, I, that. I
1: just confirmed that. I I Google imaged Andy oh. Carroll, John Joe Shelby, and they're both in Liverpool jerseys together at Anfield. So that that was a thing and now I'm and now I'm not going to sleep tonight. So
0: yeah. thanks. Okay. So outside of the uh we are obviously accepting that that these are not uh in a vacuum the two most talented players in the Premier League and and this is a a team overall that's short on talent and has ridden a lot of luck to get to where it is right now. Uh, do you see any reason why Everton shouldn't come away with all three points from this game?
1: Um no not really uh, other than just road weirdness and fatigue would be my two yeah, main uh, concerns.
0: It will be interesting obviously to see what the squad rotation looks like naturally both teams um are going to are going to look somewhat different than they did uh when they played today just because that's how it has to be. Um I think Everton's got better depth than than Newcastle does but obviously the injuries have hampered that a little bit. Um but uh, I think we cannot, <laughs> you cannot understate the, uh, the importance of the fact that this is an away match for Everton. And, uh, well, the thing about Everton is that they have one win, two draws, and six losses in, uh, in their away matches so far this season. It, I wouldn't say it's great. Yeah. It's no. uh, nine goals for 18 conceded. So that's a negative nine goal differential. Um, it's, it's bad. It is bad, um, and one of those and one of those positive results came at Old Trafford. Um, so I mean, sure. lest, lest we forget that Everton has lost at Aston Villa, Bournemouth, Burnley, and Brighton so far this year. Oh my gosh! Um, so, yes, in a vacuum, this should be a mismatch. In a vacuum, this should be an Everton win. In reality, for whatever reason, Marco Silva could never shake the demons of away form while he was in charge of this team. And while the Liverpool match was ultimately the final straw that that got him fired, and you don't really – you don't pin that on the away form uh, when you lose to a big club like that um, away. It was the inability to get results at places like Brighton and Burnley and Bournemouth and Villa and Crystal Palace, uh, on a consistent basis that, that really undid him, that really led to the end of his tenure at Everton. And it's an interesting early test, um, for Carlo Ancelotti because that, that is the first thing that needs to get righted if this team wants to get serious about moving up the table going forward.
1: Well, a lot of the problem, is it's kind of born out of the same thing, right? A lot of Everton's away losses are to teams worse than them in the table, and so if you figure out how to win against teams that bunker against you, against teams that have less talent than you, some of those are going to come on the road, and I think that that if one hand washes the other and all that sort of thing, you may see some mutual benefit there. But yeah. a bigger problem than Newcastle, probably Manchester City a couple days later, I no. would say.
0: No, it should well, be fine. I mean,
1: I know <laughs> they don't have John Joe Shelby and Andy Carroll, but...
0: <laughs> so, yes, as Chris has alluded to on New Year's Day, uh, Everton travels to the Etihad to take on Manchester City. Uh, it's a Manchester City that's probably not going to be very happy, given the the way that things are going in the league right now. Um, with Liverpool beating Leicester City today, uh, City, uh, Man City... Remains in third, uh, 14 points out of first place, uh, with one less match played than Leicester, but the same number of matches played as, as Liverpool. Um, let's, let's be real. Um, city is, is probably out of, uh, out of contention for the league. Uh, the premier league title, you know, is, is all but, but wrapped up at this point and it, Hurts us to say that because it's Liverpool done, that's, yes. done, that's done the wrapping. Um, what's gone on at Manchester City uh, with Pep Guardiola and his still very, very talented roster um, that's got them 14 points out of first place uh, on Christmas? It,
1: it, it's confounding a little bit, isn't it? Because you look at the the numbers behind it all. And City have what I would say is far and away the best attack in the Premier League still, even without uh, Leroy Sané and without Sergio Aguero for long stretches recently. And I believe they have the second best defense as well without Americ Laporte. And, you know, he's, he's clearly their best center back. And so you take away those two players and you take away Aguero for a little while and – they didn't really get any worse in any performative way from the from a numbers perspective and so i think that my ultimate answer is what's wrong with manchester city is that liverpool are obscenely lucky
0: yeah and and, and let, let's lest we awaken the gods of the angry reds liverpool also very very good sure, um, yeah, no, and, and good good value to to be leading the league right now not by 14 points and i think any reasonable red so far as that's a thing that exists, would probably admit that as well um Liverpool has has gotten some luck and obviously you know it's it's hard to compete with seventeen wins and one draw through eighteen matches uh, but and I think that city to an extent um has also gotten just unlucky um you know two of the the matches in which they've dropped points were home draws was a home draw against Tottenham on the second day this their second Match day of the season, um, yeah, that's where a good point. where they they xg would uh, Tottenham uh, three point two to zero point zero seven. <laughs> uh, Tottenham had two shots on the day; they both went in. And Manchester City, well, I'm not going to count all of the shots on the graphic that I'm looking at because it's a fucking lot.
1: It'll, t- um, it'll take you the rest of the night. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but. And then had the exact same thing happen, uh, against Newcastle at Newcastle, um, at the end of November, you know, uh, Jethro Williams, defender, uh, you know, scores their left back scores a, a worldie, uh, from the top of the box. And then John Joe Shelby, uh, gets a late equalizer on a set piece on a shot that's a 0.02 XG. And now you've gone from taking three points in that match to, to one. And, and that's it. And, and you know, even if, even if those four points were the only four points that Manchester City had dropped all season, they would still not be leading the league. Um, so you, you look at the fact that, you know, Manchester United played them pretty well. Liverpool, when they played head to head, played them pretty well. Um, you know, they had the, but they had the fluky match against Norwich, a fluky match against Wolves. It's a combination of of some flukiness with City and, and some, some good luck and obviously some very, very talented players at Liverpool. But I, I also don't think – I think that you do have to also admit that City has, has at times this year been playing with zero center backs, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at least right. mention well, that. Well, Dave, I, I personally –
1: I personally watched them play a game with Rodri and Fernandinho in the center of defense, and I I can't rightly recall what the result of that match was, but just the fact that they have to do that is not yeah. good because not only are those guys not natural defenders, but you take away two of your best midfielders, right? Like you have yeah. to play your Phil Foden's or who, whoever the case may be. And so I, I the fact that City have put up the numbers that they have while being down those guys and while having some – some weird matches is just kind of a testament to how what a juggernaut they are, but eventually, and this is kind of simplifying it, but that's, that's my thing that you, you do have to pay the piper, you know, they yeah. they've won two premier leagues in a row and, and that good luck is not going to run forever.
0: Yeah. At, at the end of the day, you can talk about bad luck and good luck and all that, but um, you've still got to put the ball in the net more than the other team does. And, and, they haven't done that uh as as much as they needed to just to to stay in the race this year much less to be to be leading it um so so that's that kind of is the the overview i think for for cities um cities premier league situation uh, let's just talk a little bit about what they face in the uh in the champions league um they they survived their champions league group they they did more than has survived it, really. They won their, their Champions League group with four wins and two draws, got out of a group with Atalanta, uh, Shakhtar Dantesk, uh in Ukraine, and Dynamo Zagreb from Croatia. Yeah, that's right. Yes, right? that is correct. Yes. <laughs> um And they will be facing Real Madrid in the round of 16 and probably the, the biggest matchup, at least in name, uh, of the, the first leg of the knockout stage. Uh, what do you figure their chances are in the Champions League? Is this a team that can make finally make a, a run in the Champions League? I, I mean, if, if, if I'm Pep, I, I would probably say you go for
1: it, right? Because the knock on Manchester City the last couple of years has been that they haven't done anything of consequence in Europe since Manuel Pellegrini's last season when they made the semifinal. And you're far back enough in the Premier League now that nothing you do there is really going to matter, um, particularly after Liverpool gave... Leicester City, kind of a, kind of a beating today, and so uh, yeah. I would, if I was Man City, I would throw all my resources into Europe.
0: Yeah, and and City's first leg, the first leg uh, against Real Madrid, is not until February twenty sixth, so it's not like it's a decision that Pep yeah, needs that's to true. right yeah. now. You know, if Liverpool goes out and loses their next four matches, yeah, then if you, you think differently, which is you know, it's not going to happen, but you have to at least respect the the possibility of it but by then you're really going to know you know are, are are we in it at this point um you know Real Madrid does not scare me particularly if if I'm Manchester City and I think you probably tend to agree um they, they have not they're not just not the same the, team since yeah. since Ronaldo left and uh, we we have our own feelings on Ronaldo I know but the guy can still play the football and and the reality is that they they just have not looked like a team that can legitimately challenge uh, the the big clubs in Europe uh, as they stand right now. Well, as I mean, I would go
1: too, and I don't want to spend much time on this, but I would go so far as to say the best teams in Europe are probably at least the first two are both from England.
0: Yeah, I, well, you know, it's hard to argue against Liverpool and their, you know, 830 million uh, league matches unbeaten at this point. Uh, you know, City remains a, a, a major threat. Uh, I certainly don't think you'd bet against either of those teams in, in this round. And then as long as they avoid each other in the next round, I I don't know if there's a, a whole lot of matchups as if I'm Liverpool or Manchester City that scare me outside of the other of the pair of them.
1: Yeah, no, I'm with you.
0: Uh, so just thinking thinking ahead to that match from an Everton perspective a little bit, obviously um, away at the Etihad, third match in seven days, uh, all of the, the typical nonsense that comes along with the, the matches at this time of year. What does Everton have to do to try to get a result at the Eddy head given the the strength of, of Pep Guardiola's team and, and all of the circumstances surrounding the match going into it?
1: I think that the answer is play Dominic Calvert-Lewin at right back, right wing back. Um, stop
0: that. You stop that right now. Uh, hey,
1: <laughs> a couple of years ago, it was, I believe, Gilfie Sigurdsson's premier league debut with Everton um Calvert-Lewin played at right back and – or at least right mid and gave uh, Leroy Sané the fullback a hell of a time. No, but all, all jokes aside, it's – I don't know that there's a, a cohesive plan available to Ancelotti yet until he gets some things figured out and until he gets some players back from injury to say one way or another. And it's also hard for me to predict because we haven't really seen what Ancelotti is about yet, right? Like mm-hmm. – there's still there's a lot to be determined, but you know one of the I I think that my inclination would be that if you sit deep and try to counter City, you're just asking to lose like six nothing because unlike maybe Chelsea where we did that and won three to one, mm-hmm. Manchester City have no problem putting thirty five shots and six goals on you like they can do that. And so I would be almost inclined to just say, "Hey, let's let's try to let's take this out back in the alley and let's just try to go after him," because really the 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 center of their defense and even even their fullbacks to a certain extent, be it especially on the left side, you know Benjamin Mindy's not that great. Um, Zinchenko is really an attacking midfielder. Angelino is from the Dutch league. Like th- there are defensive weak spots there, and I think that. Everton have at least the talent, if nothing else, to kind of get something out of it in terms of not necessarily one or three points, but at least make some some hay.
0: Okay, see, I hear you, but (laughs) what if I said let's not do that, let's bunker and pray to the finishing pixies that City forgets how to score for 90 minutes like they've already done a couple of times this season – and just hope for the best. Okay, I'm down. Yeah, let's do that. Great. Okay, good talk. Um, no, I, I just – the situation in the center of midfield <laughs> is such that I think anything remotely open gets us absolutely torn to shreds from the off.
1: Yeah, I don't know if, if you've seen
0: the form that Kevin De Bruyne is in lately, but oh my gosh. If, if, uh, if Andre Gomish and Jean-Philippe Gabon are are healthy – and can play in this match and and can impact uh you know the the midfield the potentially less physical um midfielders that that city have then yeah m- maybe you know m- maybe i'm i'm willing to to kind of open things up a little bit um but i mean my guess is that we see uh on saturday against newcastle we we see a midfield that's that's Maybe Davies and, and Holgate, maybe it's Davies and, and Schneiderlin, um, and, and then they go back to, to yeah. Siggy and Delph, uh, against City. And no disrespect to Siggy and Delph, who did a very good job today against Burnley. Um, but if you open the matchup and those are your central midfielders against that attack, you're going to die and it's going to be bloody and no one's going to like it. Um, I, I personally, I say, all right, we're going to come out 4-4-2. We're going to clog things up as best we can. Uh, we're going to try to frustrate City, a team that has shown frustration at times this year. Pray that we get a little bit of luck and that their little bit of bad luck keeps going, and, and that maybe, you know, we get a bounce or two that, that creates an attack with our speedy front two against uh, what remains a, a pretty suspect back line for them, and and then go from there.
1: Yeah, no, I can I can certainly see that as being viable, and I think that you know the way that the front two has been constructed recently kind of lends itself to that. You know, you just let Dominic Calvert Lewin and Richarlison be a pain in the ass. hmm
0: And you are absolutely right in what you've said that doing it against Chelsea is a very different proposition to to doing it against Manchester City. Um, but I, I just with the players available uh, at this point, I just can't see a way. Uh, that, that any any strategy but that one gets gets Everton any kind of result um, we didn't we didn't do it for Newcastle so I'll have you do it for for both Newcastle and Manchester City now uh, predictions for for each of the two upcoming matches uh, yeah I'm
1: gonna say that um, Everton beat Newcastle you know 2 nothing, 2-1 that kind of thing I think Moyes Keane gets his first goal at St. James's Park i be kind of sad that it's not at home because I think he's he's earned a response just in terms of his effort level from the home fans but that's neither here nor there. I I, I just a- a- Ancelotti has a lot of experience playing against big big clubs like Manchester City but what he doesn't have at this team so yet anyway is, is the talent and so for for the City match in Manchester I'm I'm foreseeing something like 3-1, 3-nothing and frankly, I I won't be,
0: I don't think there will be anything to take away from that, as usual. Yeah, um, I I agree uh, on the City match, I think a 3-0, 3-1, where we kind of walk away, shrug our shoulders, and say, hey, you know, um, we did the best we could. Uh, Let's not forget that that's a midweek match, and that the following Saturday is the Liverpool match in the FA Cup, which is going to mean
1: substantially
0: more, so I'm not saying that Carlo Ancelotti says, fuck it, I don't care about this match. Um, but I'm not saying that he necessarily doesn't or that I in his shoes would not either. Um, but that's, that's a different story. I think regardless of the lineup that goes out, you know, a 3-0-3-1 no, type is, is probably what you see. Um, I think Newcastle probably, um, probably goes, ends up being a draw. I, I think 1-1, one, one, I just don't trust Everton's away form. Uh, and it's really as simple as that. I think that, that there's a stupid mistake or something thereabouts that ends up costing Everton a lead that it takes in the first half. And, uh, and they end up dropping points in a, in a match that really is winnable. Yeah. Hey, uh, real
1: briefly that Liverpool FA cup match is actually on Sunday. And I just realized I will be flying for work during that. So I don't have to suffer.
0: Oh, you suck.
1: Oh, that's a good place to stop.
0: (laughs) All right. So uh, we will be back at you probably same time next week. Uh, We'll likely record uh, on Thursday again next week so that we can hit you up with reviews from the Newcastle and Manchester City matches and a preview of the Liverpool match to come. Keep your fingers crossed. Hopefully we'll have some good results in there and have some momentum heading into what could well be Everton's biggest match of the season. Uh, until then, keep following us on Twitter, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.